Going, going, not quite gone, but the future's looking bleak for News Hub. The Broadcasting Minister says there's nothing the government could have done to help News Hub, but its owners disagree. Devastating doesn't begin to do justice to what is happening at News Hub. It is so deeply sad for the people who work there, the people who built the place, the memories of TV3 people who have passed, the audience and for journalism in New Zealand as a whole. There are a lot of things that we often say when we're lauding journalism about its value and values, its purpose, its care, its empathy, its ferocity, its sense of justice, its critical function for democracy and community alike. A lot of that is cliché, but all of it is also true. There are also a lot of things those of us who have worked at News Hub or still work there say when we're talking about the place. Some of it's cliché, but again, it's also all true. News Hub is people. It is a whānau. The people who work there, they make you want to be better. People rally and work together to ensure you get the best story to air at 6pm. That's reporters, camera operators, editors, producers, bureau chiefs, graphic designers, directors, assignments editors, lawyers, the list goes on. There is no undercutting or nastiness. There's the brusque business of news, but there's a camaraderie and a joint sense of collective purpose which makes it truly feel like a team effort. I told you cliché, but true. News Hub is scrappy. In November 1989, when it first opened its doors, it had to be. It was the underdog, another cliché, another truism. It never had the resources of its state competitor TVNZ, nor did it have the inherited legacy infrastructure and audience. It had to fight. And no problem with pleasure, don't mind if I do. News Hub is where a lot of young journalists learn to fight and fight for what's right. Yep, another cliché, again true. It becomes instinctive for cub reporters to chase, for example, directors of failed finance companies owing investors millions down the street from court. Junior reporters make political editors' hearts swell with pride when they challenge prime ministers like this was their 20th exchange with the most powerful person in the country rather than their first. Institutions, organisations, companies who have abused people or processes are relentlessly questioned, accountability ruthlessly demanded and a knowledge that, by God, if you do it again, that reporter will be ready and waiting for round two gloves off. In the early days especially, crews would show up to jobs with one camera operator where the other guys had two, sometimes three. But TV3 crews, they hustle like no other. You might be working with just one on the election campaign, but feel like you've had the luxury and cover of working with three. News Hub is stories. Like learning to scrap, you learn the art and love of storytelling from the best and from the top at News Hub. When I started at 3 News and saw the care and craft that the most senior journalists in the company put into their stories, it not only sets a bar, but it also makes young journalists yearn to be able to replicate even an iota of what those stories can evoke. And fundamentally, at their core, News Hubbers love a good yarn on the news or just over a pint. News Hub is trust. From the Christchurch earthquakes to the terror attack eight years later, News Hub was there, hurtling themselves into the thick of it, possibly putting their own lives at risk to show us what mattered. The relationships forged with the victims and their families meant they'd never let up, years later still demanding accountability as the Royal Commissions rolled on. For some News Hub reporters and producers, the Pike River families became almost like family, staying in touch, checking in, not giving up when the public and political interest waned. Four years after the Fakati White Island eruption, and on the same day newsroom staff were told they were being shut down, News Hub went to air at 6pm with coverage of the trial. COVID-19, Cave Creek, Aramoana, Cyclone Gabrielle, Kaikoura, Rena, News Hub was not only there, it took the country there with its leading world-class people-first coverage. And that's just New Zealand. News Hub has sent reporters to tell the stories of people beyond our borders in times of war, conflict, disaster, upheaval, Ukraine, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, just a few among them. Eight Olympic Games, nine Rugby World Cups, 12 general elections. News Hub is all of those things we celebrate about journalism. Values, purpose, care, 
empathy, ferocity, a sense of justice and that critical function for democracy and community alike. News Hub is news. And I don't want to imagine a New Zealand without it. Politicians were quick to react to News Hub's pending shutdown. The shocking news, best summed up, I thought, by Winston Peters, one of the industry's toughest critics. Well, frankly, for those 300 or so staff and uh, their spouses and their family, this is an absolute disaster. But it's also a disaster for this country's democracy. David Seymour too. Well, look, it's, it's a sad day for many employees personally. It's also a sad day for New Zealand's democracy, which requires a competitive media market. The Prime Minister, though, didn't seem to think that was an issue. What does it mean for the fourth estate and for democracy? Well, look, I mean, the reality is that consumers are, complete, you know, are choosing their news and their media in lots of different channels and through lots of different multimedia outlets. Uh, we have a plurality of media voices in New Zealand that will continue. She'll be right then, I suppose. Bearing in mind this was the same Prime Minister defending his ministers still going on reality check radio, even after it platformed a far-right Austrian activist with links to the Christchurch terrorist attack. Here's Luxon on Monday. Uh, you know, that's up for um, individual ministers to work out. We want to make some available to the media outlets who possibly can. Plurality of media voices in New Zealand is very, very important. So, um, so we do not want to see a group think emerge. So he's defending the plurality of voices when it comes to whack conspiracy theorist reality check radio, but isn't bothered about the plurality of voices when a mighty torsada of the industry topples. And here's the Broadcasting Minister, Melissa Lee, who, in my opinion, was tone deaf and came across as stone cold in the face of hundreds of job losses. Plurality is not an issue because the way that people consume media has actually changed. We're no longer sitting in front of the television box watching the news at six o'clock. Now they have one choice. Are you comfortable with that? Well, there's Sky as well. There's a whole lot of other medias about. It all came in a week proving once again the necessity of a strong fourth estate. The government rushing through, under urgency, controversial legislation. Te Akafaiora, the Māori Health Authority, axed. It is a reflection of an approach that failed to put health needs for all at its forefront. How can he justify dismantling the Māori Health Authority in the same week as repealing smoke-free legislation when Māori die seven years earlier on average than non-Māori and smoking is our leading cause of premature death? Dividing New Zealanders into two ethnic groups to receive public services does not help us deliver better public services. Gun law changes were introduced, including a potential return of military-style semi-automatic rifles like those used in the Christchurch terror attack. When you're rewriting an entire act, everything needs to be on the table, yes. The Police Association president does not agree with the minister. I think there's a point we need to make really clear. Nicole McKee is a gun lobbyist. That's what she got into Parliament for. Gun lobbyists shouldn't be making firearms laws in New Zealand. This week, too, saw the start of tougher gang laws. Labour was soft on crime. Violent crime was out of control. Gang membership is out of control. We need to do something about it. That's what we're focused on. That's what I'm focused on. You think you're going to put our poor coppers out in the middle and look through and tell the mob to take their patches off? They'll just be big brawls. The government also announced an inquiry into school buildings as it hit pause on classroom construction already underway. Our government has inherited a school property system that I think is bordering on a crisis. It was deeply concerning for me to learn that spades were due in the ground in February this year for a project that had no funding secured to deliver the project. Oof, the official cash rate feels about the only thing that remains unchanged. Kia ora, I'm Tova O'Brien. Welcome to the pod. The number of families in emergency housing is the lowest it's been since April 2020. But before you breathe a sigh of relief or start thinking all is right with the world, take pause. There are still 6,495 people living in emergency motels. Nearly half of them are children. 3,216 kids, kids, growing up in motels. And you've heard the stories, and you'll hear more on today's podcast, about the state of some of those motels. Of the 2,880 households in emergency housing, more than 1,000 families have been living in a motel for over six months. More than 450 families for over a year, and believe it or not, there are 144 families living in often cramped motels for longer than two years. Two years. 
the grants they get to stay in emergency accommodation is supposed to be for up to a week at a time. So yes, the numbers are tracking down, but it's still not good. And in January, the latest figures, a slight uptick again in the number of children. 30 more kids living in emergency motels since the month before. Today, we talked to a mother who's right now going through the emergency housing system. And spoiler, it ain't pretty. We get a frontline look at the squalor some of those vulnerable people in extreme need are expected to live in. We also talk to a provider of one of the emergency motels she was sent to about the, frankly, disgusting conditions she found, and you may find his responses surprising. And the housing minister is with us too. We get the inside running on some of the big plans afoot for emergency motels under this government. Juanita De Sena had a good job. Good home, good references and a CV full of good experience. Last year, she decided to retrain to support long-term career plans. After being given notice by her landlord just before Christmas, she and her 11-year-old son had nowhere to go. Juanita applied for more than 60 rentals and sometimes up against 30 or more other applicants was rejected for every single one. Eventually, she was offered a new build near her son's kura through a social housing programme with the expectation that it would be ready in January, last month. Consenting backlogs delayed the move-in, meaning mother and son faced a future on the street. It was then Juanita turned to emergency housing, the start of a nightmare that is yet to end. She contacted the Tova pod because she believes there are entrenched narratives about people in emergency housing that need challenging, that somehow those people have done it to themselves and don't deserve compassion or basic living conditions that most of us take for granted. She joins us now, Juanita Kiora. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me, Tova. Can you please start by telling us what you found when you got to the emergency motel for the first time? It was beyond belief. It was astonishing. Um, on the outside, it presented itself as Airbnb accommodation. Mm. But then when you got up to uh, close to the building, vomit, dried vomit Ugh. down the walls on the exterior of the building. So people just put their head out the window and vomited oh. and it had dried up. Uh, you entered into the building, um, so much grease and surface dirt on the floors, um, feces, blood on the walls. Vomit, feces and blood, that's revolting. Uh, crude drawings of uh, genitalia, uh, sexually explicit and degrading um, language targeting females, uh, cockroaches, um, you know, uh, old food um, that was growing fungus in the microwave, um, stove tops in the um, communal area, uh, just covered in grease cockroaches, fruit flies, uh, food flies. Um, yeah, it was just absolutely horrific. Um, there were young babies and toddlers um, in the place. Um, it was just, yeah, it was really quite confronting and challenging. And um, yeah, I did feel my mental health take a little bit of a dip as in I just felt so overwhelmed. I'll bet. Um, this is, was going to be my new reality until my new build could be ready to move in. And we've got um, a video that you've provided to us of that emergency motel, which we'll put up on the Stuff website, which you said doesn't even do it justice, but you've painted a pretty vivid picture there. And, and you, you opted not to stay there in the end. Yes, I felt very overwhelmed and confronted by what I saw. And I just made a unilateral call that um, I was better off sleeping in my car. Um, obviously, my first um, priority was to make sure that my son was safe and um, uh, ha had him housed elsewhere mm -hmm. and um, and chose to sleep in my car that weekend, um, first thing Monday morning, uh, following MSD process, I rung the call centre to get a face-to-face -face appointment, but also did a walk-in at 8.30am as soon as the office um, opened mm -hmm. and um, explained to the caseworkers at the WINS office. Uh, they were very sympathetic and 
tried their best to get me into um, another uh, venue for emergency housing, but the challenge that I faced was that there's no quality control, there's no quality assurance about mm. where you're going to. So what was, so round two, what, what was that next? So round two, um, so I've left the WINS office, I've gone to the second location. Um, the irony is that it was located behind the High Court. Uh, midday, I haven't... Um, agreed to stay there. I'm just going to do my own quality check. Fair enough, after what you'd had last time. And so I'm um, parking, and uh, while I'm um, parking, um, I notice a couple of gentlemen coming out of the building. One goes off to my left and um, approaches a uh, black Range Rover that has gang members in it, and they're conducting a drug deal and to my right, uh, two gentlemen have walked off to um, the grass area located behind the High Court to partake of drugs. So this is midday, Monday, a weekday. So and close to the court, you've got drug dealers, gangs and people using drugs. My 11-year-old son has never seen his parents consume alcohol. Mm. So in what parallel universe would I be okay? with him witnessing drug deals, gang members. Um, so I get into the building. Um, I'm able to access the room that we've been allocated. Uh, it's a, a a very small studio apartment, but you know, we can make it work. Mm. And I get in there, and probably the first thing that hits me is the heat. So I stayed there for 15 minutes, just really mindful that you know I'm kind of going through a heightened period of time and I look on a, a, a temperature app and the room is 26, 27 degrees. Right. So I rang up the building manager and I said, is there any possibility that we could be relocated to another room? I've taken the temperature in this room and it's extremely hot. Never mind the drug dealers downstairs. And um, she informed me that the building itself has no cooling system. There's no air conditioning in the building at all. Um, that the building is at capacity with full of women's clients and um, that they wouldn't be able to accommodate me. I said, no, not fit for purpose. Health and safety reasons and security and safety reasons mm. as well. Um, but the conflict and tension that I felt was is that um, I was leaving, you know, tens of women's clients mm. in those conditions who had no choice but mm. to accept those conditions. And so I um, rang up winds, explained um, what had occurred, and um, and I didn't think that insisting on having an environment that was free of drug dealing and drug uh, taking mm. was you know, out of the realm of acceptable living standards. Mm. But I was made to feel like I was being difficult. And some people might be like, well, you should be grateful for, you know, whatever you've you've been offered. What would you say to people who, who perhaps think that? Well, you know, ask yourself, um, how would you navigate conversations with your child mm. about drug dealing, about gang? Um, imagine having to have conversations with your child about why we have to live and occupy a room together that's bordering on temperatures of 26 and 27 yeah. degrees. And also, you know, it's about, you know, what is the world reflecting back to your child that uh, these are acceptable conditions mm. and that um, your uh, primary needs um, are not important, yeah. that your health and safety is not important, that somehow you're a second-class citizen because you find yourself in emergency housing for, you know, through no fault of your own, but, um, you know, you've got to suck it up. Yeah. What do you want, Winita, the government to do about all of this? Because it funds the emergency housing. It says it needed to do that. It was a stopgap measure. It's better than people sleeping under bridges and in cars. Can it really also then be expected to be monitoring the hygiene, the cleanliness of all of these emergency housing providers? What's the government's role here? 
You know, you go out to eat in a restaurant and there's a food star rating and they have to adhere to certain things to get different grades, an mm. A grade and a D grade. And, you know, people that get D grade find themselves listed in uh, news articles and they quickly, you know, within seven days, you know, they've rectified all the issues that gave them such a bad grading. And that's not occurring in our um, emergency housing. Mm. So you actually need a quality assurance and compliance team that just does random spot checks and make sure that these um, facilities are fit for purpose, that they are you know, nurturing to our families and are serving them with dignity and respect. The other issues is, is that um, you know, we can't rely on hotels and motels to serve our short and long-term uh, emergency housing needs. Um, you know, like when we think of emergency housing, I think most people are thinking of like five to six days. I mm. mean, um, I am now facing a situation where they don't have accommodation for me because all the um, accommodation that is being used as wind supplier fully booked out for a pink concert that's coming to town. And so, you know, I now have the anxiety of uh, not knowing where we're going to be from the 8th of March onwards, should I still be in emergency housing? What is that uncertainty like for you now, for you and your boy? Well, I feel like, you know, you're running the gauntlet again. It took me three goes to find basic accommodation that was fit for purpose and clean and functional. And so it doesn't give me a lot of confidence going into this next round of like, oh, am I going to have to go through two or three residences to find that same level of quality? Um, and also that all our emergency housing suppliers are at capacity mm. for the most part. And that and so the options are slim pickings. You know, that can be quite, yeah, it makes you feel anxious um, and there's not a lot you can do. And I've only been in the emergency housing system for a little over a week. And, and that's part of the reason you got in touch with us and it's part of the reason we're talking today is you wanted to um, not just challenge the, the system but some of the, the perceptions and the stigma around the people that are um, receiving support for emergency housing. What would you say to people that perhaps believe some of those stereotypes? I think there were societal expectations that people that were accessing emergency housing were there through their inability to manage their personal lives, whether that be finances or managing a tenancy. But what we're finding today, it's a range of issues. It could be anything from a natural disaster damaging your home, and we've experienced a lot of those in the last couple of years. Um, it could be... Um, demand for rentals so the the uh, demand exceeds the supply mm. um, you know we're having up to 30 50 families attending you know private viewings and most listeners will be able to attest to this every community facebook page has posts for does anyone know of a three-bedroom rental and that's all around keeping their children in local schools and their mm. existing school and that and so um you know so we have this huge rental demand um we also have um you know a cost of living crisis as well so uh, there's recruitment freezes in every sector uh, redundancies are happening um all the time and so it's no longer about people that are perceived as not being able to manage their lives we are now entering a realm where most people are one paycheck away from being homeless. And what I mean by that is, is they lose their job, they mm. lose the inability to pay rent. And if you can't pay rent, then you're instantly homeless. So many families now living on that precipice um, and your situation ongoing as well. And we're so grateful, first of all, that you shared your story with us, but also we'll stay in touch too um, and and kind of follow the progress and we'll stay on the, on the story too and put, put these concerns to the minister who we've got on the podcast as well. Thank you so much. We approached the first emergency housing provider Juanita was referred to. He said he wanted to speak candidly, but to do so needed to remain anonymous. And we wanted his side in full, so we said yes, and for that reason, disguised his voice. I started by asking him to respond to Juanita's complaints about his motel. We do do our best. We try to employ as many staff as we can to make sure the accommodation is nice and clean. 
a lot of the clients we do receive from emergency housing, they're not the nicest. And having, you know, clients in the motel trying to comply with certain rules to not do, to make certain myths, to make certain uh, problems in the property. We do have a constant conversation with these clients, but sometimes, unfortunately, um, we do run into issues where the standard of the property that we tried to maintain not there. So what's the um, what's the percentage of WINS clients and, and other clients? So when we are running through emergency accommodation, we are not able to keep any other clients. I see. So we've gone through issues where Booking.com and Expedia, where we try to accommodate both people. And I still have this on record where Booking.com clients have claimed that these clients scream and shout in the nighttime. They do punch holes in walls. And they scream and, you know, make a big racket. And we have employed security. We have called the police, police that have never arrived. We do try to remove the clients that are not right. We try to keep the nicer clients that do follow the rules and do, you know, stick to the code of doing stuff in the accommodation. But obviously, not every time it's this easy so as well. What, what do you mean? How, how is it not easy? Is, do you mean when you're trying to remove antisocial clients? Not antisocial clients. When it's, it's really hard to manage um, clients from emergency housing. Some of them are good and some of them are bad. And usually there's more good than bad. Like a lot of these clients, we had incidents the other day where a client just literally threw out rubbish outside his room and there was like rubbish all over the hallway. And then I was at the property and I was like, oh no, this is wrong. So I called and stopped cleaners and other stuff to clean up the rubbish and what happens with these clients also when you try to talk to them or reason with them they start screaming and shouting at you and obviously with the staff they feel very unsafe so they never say anything to these clients they do bring it to management of course yeah so tell me about that what cases have you in what instances have you had to call the police why have you had to call the police in the past when they haven't in the end shown up so there was this one case where i was dealing with this client he was a young boy about 19 years old, he was screaming and shouting in the room. Everyone was like messaging in a reception. And then I made my way to the accommodation. I was out to assist my staff member who's called the police like maybe three times. And then when you, when we went up to his room, I was like, see, look, we'll have to do something because other clients are not feeling safe. Even though police is not here or no one's here, but as accommodation provider, we feel like it's our responsibility to come and see these sort of things. And when we got to the room, we opened up the room very slowly. We realized there was holes in the walls um, everywhere, like everywhere. There was not even a single place left. Like the room was completely like demolished. The TV was broken. The walls were broken. The bed was broken. Um, the lights were pulled out. The cater was broken. The fridge was broken. The kitchen was broken. Everything was broken in the room. Gosh. So police aside, shocking that they haven't showed up to support you, but also what support are you getting from, from government? Because I understand that someone also tried to stab one of your staff members. Yes, that's also happened. Luckily, it was me and my three other friends. When the client tried to fight back, we did, you know, have to initiate in some sort of physical confrontation. When police came, police started blaming us. And then I tried to tell the police, Why? I was like, they said that, because, see, look, the guy came with the knife, he chased the staff. Where I, this was nearly two years ago, everything was on footage, I gave it to the police. So what's in it What's in it for you then? Why did you apply to do this in the first place? Yeah, is it because it's quite lucrative. It can be quite lucrative, can't it? Yeah, of course. I did try to put some of our units back on Airbnb, but the economy is so slow and the tourism is so low that we have no other option. Like, honestly, I do not have any other option. Like, I'm literally back in the corner. And I did, I did speak with housing with, you know, the government and I tried to genuinely speak to them. I told them we can provide some long-term solution and they did, they gave us a few long-term clients. We had issues where the clients didn't pay for eight weeks. Mm. And then what happened with us, we didn't get any payment and we just, you know, there, and we looked at the WINS office and they said, that was a client's problem. They should have contacted us. And we're like, okay, I mean, the only thing we can do is move forward from what we've heard from from Juanita and just the do you think that you should be providing that accommodation if you can't keep on top of that stuff if that's the the level of if that's the standard that you're able to provide with any motel or anything things do slip I mean if that's the case that happens or we can just apologize for an accommodation and try to provide the best service to the next client that comes to us but that's always not our intention 
Okay, we'll pass on that apology as well to yeah. um, to Juanita. Of course, I mean, of course, if it was a genuine client and um, they get to stay, that's the last thing as accommodation we want. But at the same time, also want some recognition. Like we have a few clients that literally don't behave properly. We try to talk to them. They're not bad people, but they just the way they live. It's a bit different. Mm. And it's just sometimes very hard to manage with them. And especially sometimes we have a client that takes them and they look all fine in reception, but then after the same night, they'll do something that is not acceptable. And it sounds like you're not getting a lot of support either from WINS when you raise those concerns. I mean, I trust me, I've sent so many emails and then we have such a long damage list of things that we still need to get paid for. And I mean, I'm not there to start, you know, anything with MSD or anything, but at least some sort of support. Hey, well, we really appreciate you making time and speaking to us. And it's a reminder, I think, for people that these issues are never just black and white. So thank you very much for explaining things from your perspective. Sure. Thank you so much. We asked the Ministry of Social Development for an interview. They refused and instead told us in a statement, in general, suppliers are providing a good standard of accommodation and services. We are concerned to hear about any reports of a poor standard of accommodation. MSD says it visited the accommodation identified in our podcast and raised by Juanita. It, quote, does not meet the standard of cleanliness that we would expect. We have reminded the supplier of their obligations under our emergency supplier standards and discussed the need to make sure the premises and amenities are clean and tidy as part of that. We will be revisiting the premises in the next two weeks to check the standards are being met. MSD also told us it makes periodic checks and if complaints are made, they follow up. If suppliers fail to meet their standards, they may lose their status as an emergency housing provider. MSD couldn't tell us, however, how many motels had been struck off for being untenable. So there are problems for clients and problems for providers. What's the government going to do about it? Housing Minister Chris Bishop joins us now. Welcome back to the pod, Minister. Good morning. We've just spoken to someone on the podcast who was put up in emergency housing with her son. She says there was vomit, blood, shit on the walls. Another motel they were put in had drug dealers, gangs, drug use going on outside. Should the government be paying to put people up in places like this? No, emergency housing is a disaster and has been so for um, a long time now. And that's why this government is really determined to make progress on, on this issue. Um, I mean, there wouldn't be an MP in the parliament, I suspect, particularly electorate MPs who don't um, deal with some of these issues. Uh, speaking as a local MP, my office over the last few years has dealt with a, a range of really tragic circumstances. Um, families, mums, dads, kids living in really grotty conditions, frankly. And, you know, we, we need to get them, people living in motels, out of motels and into houses. Um, Emergency housing started life in 2016-17 as a kind of last resort, a sort of temporary short-term thing, tied people over uh, before they got into a home, but it's grown into this massive institutionalised um, bureaucracy, frankly. Um, we spend a million dollars a day as a country, as a government, um, paid for by taxpayers uh, on emergency housing. In the last five years, the government spent $1.5 billion. That's a staggering sum of money. That's, that's basically Transmission Gully, if you think about and in terms of um, capital expenditure, that's that's transmission gully mm. on emergency oh, and, housing. And I want to talk. I want to talk more about the the financial side of it, the cost of it, um, shortly. But I mean that, that that squalor, and based on your first hand experience with your own constituents, that squalor is something you have been vociferously critical of while in opposition. So can you give a commitment in government that the standards will lift for people who are who are needing to access emergency housing, emergency motels? Yes, we're doing a lot of work on that right now. And um, one of our 100-day commitments uh, is obviously to create what's called a priority one category for um, people living in emergency housing to get them into a social home. Uh, so uh, that's a 100-day commitment. So I'll be making further announcements about that soon because the 100 deadline days is, is soon looming. to be up. That's right, the deadline is looming. Um, but but the wider issue, that, that's kind of one that will help. Um, at, you know, it will help a bit. Um, but the wider issue is just how we sort out the wider mess, and we're doing some further work around that. That will include looking at standards. 
Um, sadly, it's not possible to sort of immediately shift 3,000 people out of motels into social houses or housing uh, private rentals straight away. Um, this is something that's going to take quite a few years to solve. It's taken quite a few years to build up and it will take quite a few years to solve, but we are really determined to make progress on it because the social and economic cost to, to families and individuals is immense and the government as well. Because why isn't MSD doing spot checks and going and checking on these places and ensuring that they are up to scratch? Is that something that you'll be putting in place? We're, we're looking at exactly things like that. Um, with, look, without being too hard on uh, the last government, um, I, I think it'd be fair to say that Something they. I think you've they, said never. Well, uh, you know, I'm just I'm trying to be. It's it's a difficult policy problem to solve, but I think to be fair, they they sort of chucked in the too hard basket. So, you know, as I say, it started life with good intentions. People need you don't want people sleeping on the street or sleeping in a car or sleeping in a tent. You want people with shelter. So you mm. know, motels are available. Government can pay. Fair enough. Um, so it started life, you know, with good intentions. Actually, started life under national back in 2016. But it's really, really grown. And I think the last government um, just kind of said, oh, well, it's all very difficult. We, you know, not a lot we can do about it. It is what it is. You know, we, we've got a slightly different, I, I would say, more ambitious and, and more optimistic approach about it. One thing um, that I thought was interesting is that MSD says it does do preliminary checks when it's establishing a supply, but those checks are things like companies register searches, insolvency checks, internet searches, and maybe a, a phone call with the motelier. Shouldn't they be physically checking those properties before they um, before they move them into that 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 role as an emergency housing provider? Yes, that would be that would be our expectation that they do that. And as I say, we've got a suite of work underway um, around that. So spot checks are something we are. Uh, looking at um, standards um, around it as well, because ultimately, if the government's going to help pay for people to to live in motels, um, you know, we're and we're paying quite a lot of money, by the way. Uh, it's very very expensive. Uh, you know, I think the government and taxpayers are entitled to expect a, a you know a reasonable standard, um, so that uh, you know people people are not living in, in you know really poor conditions. Some of the some of the standards I've seen, I've visited some of these motels. They sometimes they're good, but often. They're, they're pretty crummy. And, and who's, we, who's the, who's the, who does the responsibility lie with? Is it the motelier? Is it MSD? Is it the tenants? Is it a bit of both? Like, who should be ensuring that those standards are um, are up to scratch, that they're habitable? Well, that, that's that's part of the problem is, is no one's really been responsible for it over the last few years. And so we, we are looking at, at exactly that. Ultimately, the taxpayer's paying. Uh, and so we're entitled to expect a, a certain standard. The delivery, you know, for, for want of a better word, of, of that is, is clearly over to the motels. Um, and and you know, but we, we we can as a taxpayer, as a government, we can you know demand um, you know proper proper standards uh, mm. to make what, sure people what, live in some sort of you know comfort. What's the total been spent on it now? Because one point five billion under under Labor's watch. What how much has been spent all up to date? Do you know? It's one point five uh, as at the end. I'm going from memory here. It's one point five billion uh, as at the end of last year. So what mm. are we now? We're sort of you know basically the end of February. So it's about a million dollars a day. So you do the math. It's it's you know um, roughly another sixty million in the last couple of months. It's, it's yeah, a but I mean possibly around about you know if it's kind of averaging at about twenty five to thirty million a month. It's been a hundred million under your watch as well, hasn't it now? Yes, absolutely, and. Um, you know, inflation and, and cost pressures are, are there and um, around this, like they are throughout the rest of the economy as well. So the the amount um, rises, um, and it's reduce, an enormous fiscal cost for government. Will you reduce the budget that's set aside for emergency housing? Uh, we over time we want to do that. It's hard to do it in the short term because we've got three thousand families living in emergency housing right now, um, including in some parts of the country like Rotorua and Hamilton that have real rental affordability problems as well. So. Absolutely, over time we want to be able to do that. Um, it, it, it's essentially a, a grant from MSD that, that goes out, um, MSD budget for it. Um, you'll see it in the past few budgets. They've you know, they've had to uh, appropriate a, a certain amount of money, hundreds of millions of dollars each each budget. Um, so I'm not guaranteeing that in this year's budget we will uh, uh, reduce that amount for the next year because we've got a real need there right now. Um, so it's going to kind of, kind of be a you know, medium-term challenge, but absolutely over time we want to get that fiscal cost for the government down. And then back to your 100-day plan and this commitment to establish a priority one category. So that's moving anyone who's been in emergency housing for longer than 12 weeks into that kind of urgent queue or to the front of the queue. How do you do that, though? Where do they go? Because wouldn't they be moved now if they could, as is? 
Yeah, so there's a there's a social housing waiting list, which you know, as you know, is is um, you know over twenty thousand people. It's about twenty four and a half thousand at last count. Uh, those are people who have been assessed as in severe and urgent need um, of housing. Most of the people who are on that list are um, also in emergency housing, although not all of them. This is part of the issue: is there'd be a lot of people living in emergency housing who are not on the wait list, and there's a challenge around that as well. But many of the people in emergency housing are on the wait list, so. Essentially, what our policy will do is shunt them to the top of the list because my view is that there's a variety of reasons why people get onto the waitlist in the first place. Um, not everyone who's actually on the waitlist um, is not in housing. Um, so they, they might be bunking with friends, they might be flatting with people. Mm. They, um, there's a variety of different circumstances that people find themselves in. But our view is that if you're in a motel, uh, that, that's not good for you. It's not good for families with kids in particular. Uh, and and you know you should have a go to the front of the queue essentially to get out of that situation, which will be better for for the family, better for the kids in particular, uh, and better for the taxpayer as well. Um, but but as I say, the it will make a difference. Um, but the wider issue is um, solving the in the medium term. The you know my my aim is to significantly reduce the amount of emergency housing we use, so it becomes a, a temporary. You know, we'll go back to what it was originally designed for—a temporary thing, just to help people um, who are, you know, basically falling on on ha- ha- hard times. Which you, yeah, the help. which you can only do when you address the the supply side. Correct. Because that's right. Because how many families have been in emergency housing for longer than twelve weeks? How many of these people are going to be moved to the front of the queue under your many new many thousands? The average length of stay in emergency housing is now um, twenty six weeks. So. Um, half a year basically that's average so there are a bunch of people below that obviously and a bunch of people above that as well. There are nearly 3,000 households, families in emergency housing and emergency motels. 1,665 of those families have been in there for longer than 12 weeks. How long is it going to take? Where do you put those 1,665 families? Aren't you just shoveling them around on the list? So our our view is that um, the, with the priority one um, policy that we've, um, you know, essentially committed to as part of our hundred day plan, will mean that they go to the front of a queue for a social house. Um, there are more social houses coming on from both Kaimaora and um, the community housing sector, but there's also a role for the private rental market here as well because it's not just about social housing. It's actually cheaper to have somebody into a private rental. You know, clearly cheaper for the taxpayer to have somebody in a private rental. There are a lot of landlords out there who potentially will be willing to take on people who have been in social housing or in emergency housing. It's about getting the incentives in the system right to make sure that they can do that. Part of what we're doing with our um, rental changes, um, so we're reintroducing 90-day notice periods, which will encourage landlords to take a chance on people. We're also restoring interest deductibility for rental properties, um, so taking some of the cost off landlords. So um, as you know, the housing market you can't just segment one bit of it. It's not just, you know, you just deal with emergency housing, just deal with social housing. You've got to think about the private rental market as well. Uh, and then, of course, home ownership as well. Um, so we want to make, we want to make, we want to take action on every single part of the housing market because it all fits together as a giant jigsaw. So how long then will it take to clear that that initial category one list, the, the um, 1,665 families? How long will it take to get them off the housing list and into into social housing? Well, when we've um, announced the details of the policy and, and, and released that, um, you know, very soon you'll, you'll see that um, and, and we'll be making some, um, some projections around that. But I, I just want to warn you and I suppose people listening that it's um, – this is not going to be something that we make progress on in six months or a year. This is a um, this is a sort of medium term thing. Our housing challenge is built up over many years and many decades, actually. Uh, and I'm not saying it will take decades to solve it, but it will take some time. Do you have a target? Do you have a target for this term in government? How much you're aiming to reduce those numbers by the households who are living in emergency housing? We, we are looking at a specific target around that, and um, I will um, be making announcements about that in due course. Halving it? Uh, as I say, we're looking at a target to really focus the system, and um, once we've landed on the target, you will be one of the first to know, Tova. But you won't be ridding you won't be ridding the country of emergency housing in your first term. It's longer term than that, isn't it? Well, as I say, you'll see the target when we announce it. Um, but I'm really determined to make progress on this. It's an enormous um, social cost for individuals and families, and for the government. Can you give a commitment that none of those families, and they're predominantly Māori families, can you give a commitment that none of those families will end up on the streets or sleeping in their cars again in sheds under bridges? 
nobody wants that. Um, nobody in, wants that, but can you give a commitment that none of them will? But certainly the, the, the intention is for that not to happen, absolutely. The emergency housing will always be there for people who need it. So for um, people who, for a variety of different circumstances and reasons, um, fall on hard times and need need help from the government to, to find shelter. No one wants anyone living in tents or in, in cars. Um, dealing with, dealing with um, some of the people who end up in these circumstances can be challenging for a variety of reasons, addiction, mental health. Um, and so the, the role of the government, and I think most Kiwis would expect the role of the government in those circumstances, to wrap around those people, um, work with them, um, help them, um, nurture them if necessary. Uh, that, that involves um, spending a bit of money, um, you know, it's, it's quite a bit of money actually. But I, I don't think any, any Kiwi begrudges the government doing that. What they do get worked up about is um, the, the, the ongoing fiscal cost of the government of just paying grotty, squalid motels to house people in, in substandard conditions um, when we could fix the system and, and make it better. And that's what we're determined to do. Okay, so we've got a commitment there from you. Um, spot checks, probably better checks before putting these, um, these motels into the emergency housing provider market anyway also that there'll be a reduction in the number of people in emergency housing the budget will be cut as well eventually and there will be a reduction target which we'll probably learn next week i imagine because march the 8th is the the deadline for well, the you 100 can do the day math. plan you can do the math like everyone else so there you go yeah. still good. But all, no, of this and all, all of this and also a commitment from you minister that you won't be pushing households out families whanau out onto the streets correct thank you very much for your time minister really appreciate it thank you Lots of good intel there, I thought, from the housing minister. I'm interested to hear your thoughts as well. Juanita, she told us that she wants to change perceptions about emergency housing and the people who need it. I wonder, has she changed yours? What is your perception of people who are, who are living in emergency motels? And what do you think of what the minister said there? Is the government doing enough? Is it doing the right things? Email me, tova at stuff.co.nz, and we'll get to some of your feedback a little later. At this point, we would normally talk to Andrea Vance up first, but as you'll have heard over the last couple of pods, she is on a trip of a lifetime to Antarctica right now. She's doing something amazing away from the boat and out of internet range. But we still have our magnificent, our wonderful political editor, Luke Malpass. He is here with the Beehive Buzz, what we should be looking out for over the next week. Kia ora, Luke. Kia ora, Tova. Just uh, awful awful news. Um, I don't really have the words to articulate it, but around what's happening at, at News Hub this week, the press gallery is, of course, such a tight unit of organisations and, you know, some of the best journalists in the in the country work there, including the phenomenal team at, at News Hub Politics. I wasn't there this week, but I've been hearing from people in the, the gallery. Everyone's feeling things quite profoundly there. Yeah, so obviously there's two TV stations in New Zealand, basically. And one of them is about to cease to be, or at least its news operation is. And that means all the journos who are in the press gallery and, and around the country. And, um, you know, that's going to create a really big hole in political coverage. And, you know, I think all of us who, assuming there's no, you know, last minute change or white night that comes in, I mean, all of us in the press gallery are going to terribly miss News Hub, you know, as, as colleagues, mm. uh, as friends, and as an important part of the journalistic um, ecosystem. Totally, and that fierce competition, it just makes us better. You know, it's that's the one of the beautiful things about the press gallery as well is there is that intense competition, which is why everyone is so high-functioning, but also there's that incredible camaraderie. So our thoughts really are with um, with our news hub, Fano, and we'll be there to support you in any way, any way that we can. Very much so. I think this week as well, proving the importance as well of the fourth estate, isn't it? We've seen so much rushed through under urgency from this government, a lot of controversial legislation, also a lot um, to come yet. The 100-day plan deadline is is fast looming. We've heard on the podcast already, Luke, from the Housing Minister about some plans around emergency housing and what's coming up there. What else does the Coalition still have to do? Well, there's a few little bits and pieces. Uh, if you look at the 100-day plan, some of it's rats and mice, like, get started on better regulation kind of stuff like that. <laughs> Whatever that means. I think the uh, Auckland fuel tax still needs to be repealed. So that'll be coming up um, next week. And of course, the deadline is, is Friday next week on the 8th. The last couple of days, the past couple of things, the smoke-free legislation, which was passed by the previous government, which had never actually come into force, 
has been repealed. So basically, mm. um, rules around selling cigarettes and all that sort of stuff just remain unchanged. And the Māori Health Authority was also disestablished. So they've got a reasonable list of things still to kind of tick off, but a lot of it is not, you know, repealing laws or, um, or bringing in new legislation. It's probably a, a press release saying, hey, you know, here's a document, we've started on this new transport plan for Auckland or whatever it might be. So to that end, I suppose your assessment is that they can pull it off? They'll get through that, that entire 49-point action plan? Oh, no, no, I think they will. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, Fiso Collins' tragic death means that it's, it'll go up to the line a bit more in a legislative sense next week. But I think they'll basically get through everything. Uh, it's interesting because, you know, there's a debate about the extent to which this is useful or it's just a bit of a PR exercise. And to be honest, I think it's probably a bit of both. It probably is quite a useful discipline mm. on a bunch of ministers knowing that, you know, your boss is basically breathing down your neck that this has to be done. So that is probably a useful discipline. But, of course, on the other hand, you know, there's all the all the things they, they get to announce. But, of course, there's been so much on the list that there's a whole lot of little things that they haven't even put out a press release about. They've just sort of gone on and done it. So it'll be interesting because Luxon said that he's now going to go on and uh, think about governing in quarters. You know, what are we going to do in the next quarter? So, mm -hmm. you know. Multi-hundred day plans. Can't keep a good CEO down, right? What's the quarterly target? <laughs> <laughs> it does feel like something we, we call in um, in the journalism industry the classic re-break as well. You know, someone might have done a story and then someone comes along breaks it a little bit later. The government's been doing the classic re-break on all of its policies. We're announcing the policy. We're campaigning on the policies. Now we're announcing the policy again. We're actually doing the policy. We're introducing the legislation for the policy and get, trying to get um, coverage of all of those different different elements. So it is a bit of an exercise in spin. It's quite a, quite a clever one. Um, but also, yeah, as you say, a good, a good method of, of stock taking. Is there anything else that we should be looking out for this upcoming week, Lukey? I think that's really going to be the main thing for the government. One of the things that they have handled least well since coming in has been the repeal of the old government smoke-free legislation. Now that that's out of the way mm. and that's done, I think the political question is the extent to which that's, that hangs around their necks and, and is problematic, or the fact that it's now done and actually nothing's changed, you know, does the caravan just move on? So I think that'll be an interesting one to watch. Yeah, they've done they've done quite well um, from a PR perspective, I suppose, in terms of getting some of those really controversial ones out of the way. Yes. The Akafai order, the Māori Health Authority disestablishing that, the smoke-free laws, um, gang laws, I think, uh, controversial in, in some quarters as well. Gun laws as well, which were introduced this week. So in a way, it's going to be interesting to see if this government can shift eh, into a slightly less chaotic government than we've seen in this opening gambit because of those very controversial changes. Yeah, totally. Does it sort of become a bit more governing as normal? And I think as part of that, as far as governing as normal goes and setting targets and trying to reach them, so far it appears that Luxon actually does have a skill set that he's a really quite good manager of that sort of thing. Uh, but I think the real test for him is A, if he can sustain that, and B, in politics it's really the events that you don't expect and how you respond to them. You know, that'll just be an interesting tension to watch with this government over the, over the coming months. And years. <laughs> Thank you so and much years. for your time, Lukey. <laughs> Always appreciate it. I'll see you next week. Yeah, thanks so much, Tyler. I'm always interested to hear from you. Email me, tova at stuff.co.nz. And we've got producer Chris in with us. G'day. G'day. How are you? All right. How are you? I'm not too bad. Well, it's just been a Tough shitty, week. shitty week, yeah. hasn't it? For lots of reasons. Yeah. Which is why we're going to do something slightly different with the... Slightly different. Yeah, as we just heard from Luke, good journals really care about good journalism. Whoever does it, while we're all fighting for the best stories, you know, we do appreciate the great work that other people do. Uh, and there's a lot of sadness at stuff, as there is in other newsrooms, about the impending closure of News Hub. Mm. Um, so we thought we'd give you a snapshot of the reaction to that news from our readers. And it's been an enormous reaction as well, has hasn't it? It's um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, really yeah. heartening to see. Uh, first up, Ice House, and I suspect none of these people are using their real names, <laughs> wrote, we definitely need competition in news media, TV One and News Hub have different formats and target audiences. I particularly love Paddy Gower's programme. Paddy Gower has issues. Great journalism. Very entertaining indeed. Correct. Uh, I'm sure that talents such as Paddy and Mike McRoberts will be snapped up, but obviously not everyone's going to be. Well, this is the thing as well, isn't it? And I keep oscillating between all of the implications. First, for my friends at News Hub and everyone there who's losing their job for the industry, for democracy, what it means in terms of what they all do 
do next. It's just, it's actually, un, it's unfathomable. I think the reverberations of this are just going to be so enormous. We're all in shock at the moment and I don't think we've properly grappled yet with, um, with what's to come. Another comment here from Don saying, three news later, News Hub has always told it as it is. Ain't that the truth? With competent journalists, the government must step in and do something. But the current government likes undoing things, so they'll be much happier with a single state-controlled broadcaster. This is a dark day in New Zealand as an independent nation with decisions about our future being made by Americans. And that is a reference, of course, to Three's owner, Warner Brothers Discovery. Mm. I'm from Know Nothing. Oh, heck, I've watched three news ever since it came on air. The personalities of the presenters far outdoes other news channels. It's devastating news for all of NZ. Goodbye to the best of the best. And uh, someone called Property Leader said, I feel for the staff. I know because I and my colleagues were all made redundant from Telecom 30 years ago. I had no business skills, so made lots of silly mistakes. But my wife and I, plus our three children, supported other each other and we survived. So uh, a heartening tale, I suppose, mm. there for, um, for those you people who are facing positive. that uncertainty. Yeah, if indeed. You can. So bloody hard. Uh, and Think Again wrote, the government should throw News Hub a lifeline to keep it running, say £35 million a year News Hub's annual loss for two years and in return require a plan showing the business can sustain itself. New Zealand needs a second TV news channel for democracy's sake to tell our stories and hold power to account. £35 million is a pittance in terms of public spending. It's what the Christchurch Council spends on a new library in the suburbs. Yeah, and what what you know, RNZ got like 120 million dollars um, not that long ago on top of its existing funding. And I also think as well, there are reports that when News Hub went up for TV3 went up for sale that they got their losses down to I think five and a half million dollars as well. So you know, I just I just wish that more had been done before getting to this point. I, yeah. Can I? I just also want to say as well that I was so struck. On the day of the announcement, so all of the staff at News Hub, they've just found out that they're losing their jobs. They're being forced to work through until June if they want to get their redundancy packages. They're going through this process, I say in inverted commas, that, you know, isn't likely to change anything. So on the day they're learning all of this, what we saw on News Hub Live at 6 and again the following morning on the AM show was true professionalism and a testament to all of those incredible people at News Hub and how seriously they take their craft, putting together a news bulletin, being forced to report on themselves like that. It was courageous and it was delivered with the same level of care those journalists in that newsroom have always given when they've been reporting on other job losses or company closures or industry shutdowns. And I cannot imagine how hard that would have been. But they did their colleagues such great justice. In my opinion, not enough was done to explore options to reduce costs or ensure the ongoing viability of a critical news service before hitting that nuclear option. It defies belief that they took this step before properly exploring other lifelines. The bosses needed to fight harder. Save your tears and fight for your people. They needed to bring their people into the fold sooner, not string them along with promises of what was coming, false hope, new shows, an end to hiring freezes when they knew full well what was coming. And I imagine they knew a lot longer than they're letting on. Ultimately, and again, yes, in my opinion, corporate assholes with zero regard for or understanding of the lives of hundreds of people and the function of News Hub and what it contributes to democracy, to journalism, to the fabric of New Zealand. They made a ruthless, stupid, short-sighted decision, the consequences of which will be felt for generations. Shame on them. Shame. And as Paddy Gower said, though, everyone at News Hub, and they've all helped contribute to its legacy, they should be incredibly proud of everything that they've done. You've been listening to Tova, hosted and produced by me, Tova O'Brien. Follow us on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts to get the latest episode automatically. And keep an eye on your feed for bonus shortcasts, including uh, we're going to put the full extended interview with Juanita up this week, and it's well worth a listen. I thoroughly recommend it. You can also listen to all of this at stuff.co.nz forward slash Tova. 
Thank you so much to audio editor extraordinaire Connor Scott, to senior journalist Aaron Darman, and of course, executive producer Chris Reed. Most of all, thank you for listening. A week is a long time in politics. A week is just a long time in general, it feels, at the moment. Anything could happen. We got you. Ka kite. Holding the powerful to account takes time and resources. Show your support and visit stuff.co.nz slash contribute. That's stuff.co.nz slash contribute. Mm-hmm.